We're back. This is Tasneem and Andrea. We're back for another episode of Truth Be Told. And this one has me kind of in my feelings. You're always in your feelings. I kind of am somewhat of an emotional person. But this one is also because it it reflects on how we spend our spare time, our non-work time. And sometimes we spend it listening to other podcasts. We do. And for me, the measure of a good podcast is can I listen and will I listen while I'm doing other things? Will it hold my attention so that I can sort of multitask? Is it good enough for me to listen to while I'm on a long drive? Do I mind the children hearing it? Will it stay on my mind long after that episode is over? And then will I come in to the library and say, Andrea, oh my goodness, this episode hit me. Yeah, I got to go Husky. This episode was deep. So if that's too husky. Tell that's too husky. Did you bring it back? <laughs> that episode was deep. Thank you. And so as as you were pointing out, the podcasts you listen to aren't necessarily the same ones that I listen to in my spare time. No, it's not. And I think which speaks to just the uniqueness of who we are. But it also speaks to this idea of both of us being curious. Oh, indeed. Right? And indeed. so if this is truth be told, there's some sense of curiosity, even in our spare time, that we are still seeking truth. That's right. Right. And so the podcast that I am just like on a 100 or 100 right now is, of course, everybody should know by now. My fave podcast is Lovecraft Country Radio, hosted by Ashley C. Ford and Shannon Houston. How about you? The podcast that I have listened to and have continued to sort of listen to in different sessions is... Nice White Parents, hmm. which is a study of the public school system and the relationship. Why are you looking away? Because it's a study. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> it's a st- I'm sorry. Go on. It's no told, judgment. It's Dad. told, it's told in beautiful vignettes. But it is looking at um, this 60-year relationship between white parents and the public school down the block and black and brown people and integration and segregation. And I know your face right now, friends. You can't see Andrea's face, but right now she's like, yawn. No, no I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, the study in vignettes is great. Mm. Um, the podcast of mine, of course, is how it's connecting, first of all, black writers and black actors and actresses and horror and black culture and connecting it to issues that we're dealing with right now. So there's a connection in the podcast about the show. Correct. Lovecraft Country, which is also based on a book. Correct. And it's connected. But it's counter to the book, but go on. It's counter to the book, but it's connecting horror. I mean, it is horror. It's, that's with the black genre. culture. No, the genre is horror. The genre is horror. Right. So right. it's black people in a horror film. It's more than black people in a horror film. So why don't you start us off with your study and vignettes then? <laughs> As you can see, I've totally got defensive because you want to compare a study and some vignettes to Lovecraft Country. But it's but go true. on, Tasmania. Let's take it. That's why are you so excited about your podcast and the mind? And I know we are going to connect because there's when we both were talking about the episodes that we wanted to share today. There's this overarching theme in both of them, right? And I think that theme is proximity to whiteness and the power that comes with that. Yeah. So. And I can see how that might connect to a horror film, quite honestly. It is horror. It, it, thank you. It's horrific. Yeah. Touche. Yeah, touche. Uh, so, Nice White Parents, uh, I'm a little bit speechless because it felt personal at certain points. How so? Not necessarily because I spent 
a large part of my childhood in the great state of New York, not because of that, because I did not grow up in Brooklyn. But it really did touch upon what I imagined my parents had to think about, which was where do I educate my children if I'm choosing not to educate them at home? What place is suitable? How can I get them, let's call it, the best education? And what does the best mean? And so what this reporter does is begin to look at a school in Brooklyn, and of course she ends up bringing in other schools, and you know those New York schools, PSIS, all these acronyms, kind of things, mm-hmm. all the S's. And so what she does is look at what the influence of white parents does to a school that may have been, and in this case was, traditionally inhabited by black and brown students, a neighborhood school. Right. IS-293 was a mostly segregated school for decades, and still it was subject to the whims of white parents. Nice white parents shape public schools even in our absence because public schools are maniacally loyal to white families, even when that loyalty is rarely returned back to the public schools. Just the very idea of us, the threat of our displeasure, warps the whole system. So separate is still not equal because the power sits with white parents no matter where we are in the system. So when white parents come in, what happens? What happens when people feel as though white is equal Mm. to access, to great academics, to resources, to brilliance? So it touches upon things that hit me in my personal story. For example, the creation of what we call G&T, Gifted and Talented Programs. I think here in Metro it's called... Encore? Yeah, that's one of them. One Mm -hmm. of them? Okay. So this idea that your students are super smart, and they're so smart, they need to be separated from the other students. For us to go tell them how smart they are. Yes. And everything will be accelerated because they're super smart, and they're so smart, they may be bored with every other Tom, Tavares, Aisha, and Sylvia. They need to be with the super smarts in a separate room, on a separate floor, take a separate bus, maybe even eat separate gifted food. I don't know. Now, you might think maybe I'm, it's magical. Maybe it's magical because they're super smart. You might think I'm hating. The truth is, my sister was in a GNC program. And, and, and truth be told, I mean, we're not hating on any of this. We're not this hating. Is, this, this is truth. This is reality. This is it's truth. truth. And it's factual. And okay. if you if you listen to, I think it's episode four, could be three. You do your own research, listeners. It talks about how gifted and talented programs were created as a function of segregation. Right. But under the guise of integration. So your school is integrated because we have all these smart white kids. The white kids still go to the public school down the street. But we also take them and put them in separate everything. Mm -hmm. And so you create this interesting hierarchy of intelligence. You also create a system in which some students never even hear about the testing for GNT. You also have a system where parents are hiring private psychologists to test their children's academic abilities. You also have a system in which the parents call themselves the gifted parents and say that their students are blessing the wider population of students simply by By proximity, by being there. Just the very being and the very essence of whiteness being in a space somehow has translated to mean that it's better. Better, power, you get access, you have resources. It's the same conversation we have in the Civil Rights Center. It is. Right. So what is this idea of if I go to the quote unquote white school, what am I getting that I didn't get in the quote unquote black school? And then the mythology around it. We hear people say all the time, well, the black school had tell me every substandard thing and the white school had 
La, can you hear the angels? I hear them. Ah. There's a little harp. Yeah, yeah. That each child had a harp. Ah. It was gilded. <laughs> they had their own harp. And if my black child goes in, maybe she'll get a harp. She too, too can have one. Yeah. So the mythology says that you know to be black and brown and to be in a black and brown school that must include dysfunction. Mm. To be in a white school, it must include elevated everything. So to be in a white school, that takes me to my episode, episode five, mm. which has had me. And let me say, if you have not previewed and you're a you know watcher of Lovecraft Country and you have not seen episode five, I'm sorry, there's going to be a small spoiler alert. I need to say that now. So in episode five, the title of it is called Strange Case. Right. And so one of my favorite characters is played by Wumi Masaki, who's a Nigerian-born British actress and singer. She plays the character of Ruby. And in this episode, Ruby becomes, by choice, eventually by choice, a white woman. Do you mean she just gets super light-skinned? No, she does not. And it's not the fading of... The, literally, she goes through a metamorphosis. The entire episode is about metamorphosing and metamorphosis, right? Change. And it goes through change. And so Ruby literally becomes a whole nother person, Hillary Davenport. Another actress. Another actress who actually played in another episode who was one of the series... Most racist, most segregationist, this woman who was prevailing, you know, got these dogs and a gun and take your black selves home before it gets dark. Don't you know where you are? So Ruby comes back in the body of that person. Mm. Right. But Does a new she keep character. her own voice? Uh, no, her voice is different. So this idea of what whiteness looks like as it relates to power. And so we see Ruby navigating both of these spaces, who she is growing up and living in Chicago in the 1950s. And so that's the setting. And then she becomes this white woman. And, and then the realization of what she realizes, she wakes up and says, oh, my gosh, I woke up white. And then she talks us through what it was like to actually now recognize the power that comes with that and how whiteness is the only commodity that she needs. In order to what? In order to survive, in order to live, in order to breathe, in order to have power. And then you see the character struggles with power. She struggles with, should she use it? Will she become a victim? Will she become the victor? Is she going to be the perpetrator? Is she going to rescue the other um, black character who works at the department store as well? And so you see her struggling and talking, but eventually she chooses to interact and go in and out of this white woman's body and actually works in her dream job that she couldn't get as a black woman. Wow. That she was qualified for and the only way she got. And so not only did she get the job, she walked in, Marshall Fields is the store, she walks in, she gets the job and just by the sheer nature of who she was as a white woman, the regional manager makes her the department manager. And yeah. does she stay in whiteness or like on the weekends does she turn black again? I can't tell you. Like, I don't want to tell you because I've been trying to get you to watch it. But the idea of you see the metamorphosis, you see how she's struggling with this idea of power and this idea, you know, it makes each of us think, you know, it's easy for us to judge Ruby and say, I would never do that. I would never walk. I would never trade places with a white woman. I have no desire to be a white woman. But we also then, we have to judge systems. We have to judge ourselves. Ruby shouldn't even have to be in a situation that the only way that she can succeed in her career and not be a threat, because she also talks about when she walked down the street as a white woman, that she's no longer feared. You scared the shit out of me to wake up white. And... 
when I was stumbling down the street, crazed and disheveled and screaming at everybody around me. They weren't scared of me. They were scared for me. They all treated me like... A human being. And so it makes us question systems. It should make us judge systems. Do you relate to Ruby's truth? I struggled. I struggled with this episode for so many reasons, and we don't have enough time. Maybe we'll have like a sidebar conversation of why I struggle with this episode. But the main reason I struggle with this episode is the fact that Ruby, it's on the screen and we're watching it. You know, mainstream America, we are watching how a black woman who is a beautiful black woman who could not succeed in the only way she could in her career is to become white. Mm. I struggle with that and then realizing that now I'm going to take on this white body and I'm going to embody all the likeness of whiteness and maybe I'll use some of my power and am I going to use my power for good? And then she has to deal with the other white people in her system and, and a lot of times it felt as if she was quiet listening to all the other white people around her. And what that felt like, this episode, I, I struggled. I struggled with the idea of, of proximity to whiteness, period. Mm. And how, and in certain situations, Ruby's character was like, yeah, it's reality, though. Reality. And but who's reality, right? And yes, it is a reality, but there is a counter-reality to that. If, if she had chosen not to, then she would have probably had to continue to work or two, three, because Ruby is a hustle. She gets her hustle on. She works more than one job. But to make life easy, easier, and I think the quote that she said, she said, the one thing about being white that she liked, the only thing about being white that she liked is that she was never interrupted. I don't know what is more difficult, being colored or being a woman. Most days I'm happy to be both, but the world keeps interrupting and I am sick of being interrupted. And she could just go through life with no interruptions. Her progress, not interrupted. Her career trajectory, not interrupted. Being able to be in spaces, not questioned and not interrupted. Mm -hmm. Mm. Nice White Parents kind of touches upon that also. They talk about how white students have the advantage of never being described as a group. So if there are two white male students who get suspended. No one says, ooh, those white boys are so rebellious. They're just students. They just get to be individuals. And so she says it's hard even to start to self-identify as a collective when you are white. So I'm imagining that even this idea of white power and who that's listening connects to it if they also identify as a white person. So who am I? I'm, am I not just me? Right. I belong to this larger group that has identifiable stereotypes and stories attached to it and assumptions and all those things. And so, wow. Yeah. How do you listen? And so choices, you know, our proximity to whiteness and power within that whiteness, it impacts decisions that we make. It, apart from our podcast, apart from the conversations we have in the civil rights, our podcast choice and the civil rights center, it impacts the decisions that we make day to day, the ones we make in our own homes. And then it becomes really personal, you know? It does. It does. I think back to thinking about what to name my daughters. 
So on one hand, and we, we love this idea of the double consciousness, right, that right. we bring up all the time. Thank you, Brother W.E.B. Thank but you. Th- this double consciousness that says, I will name them names from our culture and heritage. And so they have names. Um, their father and I chose to name them names from their culture and heritage. Right. Each one, you can get, there's a meaning, it's, there's an associated language to the name. There's stories behind the names. Well, I named you this, Yemurai, because there's a whole story. And she grew up embracing that story. Embodying the story. Yeah, yeah. Yemurai to be adored, and that girl walks like she should be. Yeah. And so that's even the idea, too, that is cultural. You name your child a name that they will embody that's and right. present and model. My child's name means little king. Does he act like it? You tell me. <laughs> that's a yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a yes. So, but they've also talked to me about how when they look at wider cultures and if they're in spaces in which other people have cultural names, they feel very comforted, connected, familiar. If they go into wider spaces where, and people often say, you named your children, what? whatever happened to the good old names like Mary and Emily? The good old names. Yeah. yeah. And so my children's names don't sound anything like Mary. They never show up on a most popular girl's names list in USA Today. Never. And just that. You can't go in a gas station and find a coffee mug. That says Yemurai. No, or Aziza. Shouldn't make one for her. Heck, Tasneem. I've never seen a pencil (laughs) that said Tasneem. Monogram, nothing. No. So that whole idea of without even seeing them, you already know. And so you and I both know about the resume test that everybody has talked about. It's factual. You know, do you... Should I just identify her by initials mm-hmm. and then try to find the most English sounding aspect of her name? Mm-hmm. Oh, her middle name is Grace. So put A, The most Western sounding name. And then might that get her a job? Right. And so from trying to name them on a cultural basis, where have I positioned them in proximity to power? That's it. And if power is assumed to be white and Eurocentric, have I positioned my children and maybe given them a deficit where they are already several paces behind because of their name versus giving them a name that might be a little more racially ambiguous, like um, Stephen Jones. Wow. Shout out to all the Stephen Jones out there. In your hey, Stephen. You under the radar, Steve. <laughs> Stevie J. He's operating in and out of spaces. He is. <laughs> you know, versus a name that people go, and my children all go, it's me. They just raise their hand when the teacher starts to stutter. Like, yeah. um, I grew up like that. I know when someone goes, Tasneem. Oh, that's how you say it. Yeah. But have I passed that along? And in some ways, I think we make decisions in defiance of this idea of what power is. That's right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care that you situate power in whiteness. I situate my power in who I am and what I am. Exactly right. And so I will name them according to that. But there is a cost. And there is a debate that some things are lost and some things are gained by this proximity to power and what power looks like. Because when we speak of power, and so just for a minute, if we think about power and proximity, most scholars are going to say the proximity to whiteness, proximity to Western culture. But very seldom... In scholarship, do we talk about the power that exists in other communities, communities of color that have always existed in a Rosewood or mm. in any other, in Tulsa, right? And we talked about this in Lovecraft Country Radio also. Of course. Of course. And so the idea of, of spaces that were all black and they were powerful. 
And I think the podcast talks about Central Park being Central Park's history. Oh, wow. It's very nature of the history was a hub for people of color. And then some folk were like, oh, we don't want you guys here. But this looks like a, n- a lovely park that we want now. Yeah, we those want it, right? And so back. we think about the power. We automatically think about power and our brains automatically shift to thinking that power has to equate to goodness, has to equate to whiteness. Mm. And in actuality, I wonder what would happen if in our homes we would have the conversations when I say proximity to power, then that's proximity to uh, an HBCU, proximity to the history of Tulsa, proximity to, you know, an all black and brown cast, yes, Andrea, right? Yes, what yes. happens when we shift that thought yeah. that our young people, that it's that's up. the power. And, and we're doing that all the time. We are. We are definitely doing that all the time. I think when I am around people who have gone to HBCUs, present company included. Thank you so much. The pride. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's nothing. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world because the idea that I have been in spaces of being the only black girl in white-centered spaces and what that felt like. So to make the choice to be empowered, to empower myself, to be around other people who are empowered, who I don't have to constantly apologize or I'm not questioned or explain. Right. And so that gives me like so personally, you know, Ryan, my my, my amazing 19 year old man, son, he's been in schools that were conducive for his learning style and whatever school that's been, some have been very small. We made conscious decisions of what schools we put them in, what neighborhoods we lived in, and so forth, right? These are the decisions that we make, whether they were proximity to power or access, opportunity, survival. Those are decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. And I remember having telling him about, you know, so who's your little friends? Who, who Who's your bestie? Well, or it wasn't bestie, but who's your friend? Did you make some new friends? And listening to the names I'm listening for, is there a cultural name? Am I going to hear a Rakim? Are you gonna, am I going to hear a Shakira name anywhere And when you are naming your friends? And so I remember having the conversation with him, not necessarily about you need to have all black and brown friends. But the idea of clearly saying in a way that a third grader, a three-year-old, because we had these conversations early, could understand is that I would love for you to have friends that you can be around. When you experience, we, we talked in a previous episode about that armor. Mm. When you experience racism or when you experience an injustice or when people treat you differently, son, because they are going to treat you differently. It would be great if you had like a little crew at school who you could just be like, guess what happened to me? And they would understand. They would feel it because nine times out of 10, they have had that same experience. All friends don't have that level of understanding. And all friends are not going to say, well, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe you were seeing it and you're too sensitive. And you're, is there another way? Maybe that that's not what they meant. And so I've tried to tell him early on, like, isn't it wonderful to be in spaces that you don't have to explain your very existence. Mm-hmm. Did he find that group? Right now, his two roommates in college are his same two friends. And I think it's they were three of the four or five young black boys in the entire grade. Mm. And so they've been friends since middle and high school. And fortunately, they're still friends right now in college. And they are roommates right now. In the awesome. them. And so it's like they had to find this, this bubble mm-hmm. within that larger bubble because mm. they were the three. Right. And so if there were three black boys in his grade and let's say there were two black girls 
you know, the moms are like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Who's going to date who? Who's going to get to go to the dance with this person? So it's always been a thing. But he and his friends found a way that they found power within themselves, within that larger bubble in space. I love the idea of bubbles. It makes me think of a conversation that we've had about sacred segregation and the power of not having to explain. Not to say that every single person with certain levels of melanin have had the same experiences. No, we're not that's, saying that. that's not what we're saying. But we are saying that for some people, there is a kinship, an unspoken kind of connection. My mother talks about it when she talks about growing up in the Deep South, in the segregated Deep South. Right. And she talks about the preciousness of that time of looking around and being assumed brilliant by all the other black people around her. When I've heard people talk about HBCUs, I hear that same thing. Parents who send their daughters to all-girls schools, I hear the same thing, like they're all in this space. That segregation does not have to be defined necessarily by skin color or heritage. It could be gender. Right. So all those things. I think it's, I think it is wise and important to recognize the complexity around this idea of belonging and being separate, being engaged and being just observant, being on the sidelines and being in the middle, being part of the smaller bubble or the bigger bubble. Yes. It's not just... Integration sounds great because we should all be together all the time. And there's this great weeness that we're striving for. I think we have to acknowledge that there is sometimes something very precious about looking around and feeling like, I know this bubble. This is home. This is familiar. And this is home, right? And I get to choose who's in that bubble and who's in my home. And, you know, that idea of it's my space. And so if I choose not, I don't care if you, you got your own bubble. Your bubble is what Western culture is. So I don't, I don't, I don't really care about that. But mm-hmm. this is my sacred space. Yeah. And there's nothing I love better than being in those sacred spaces. And you and I talk about this, how we operate in spaces that are not sacred. How do we operate in spaces that are traditionally have systems set up to make it very uncomfortable and hard and oppressive? Right. When you are the only, Mm -hmm. Um, and we've learned and we are learning how to continuously navigate those spaces without losing this idea of kinship, without losing this idea of realizing if I am in a position in these spaces that are dominant, what do I do with that power? Mm -hmm. And is the idea of power, can it be referenced in terms of resources and equity? There you go. That's that. Right? Yeah. So, like, I like in Nice White Parents, they make this point. Right. Or the point is just made through the story. Sure. That excellence knows no heritage. It has no lineage attached to culture. But once you play around with the resources attached to certain heritage groups and lineage and skin colors and all those other, you know, separators and dividers, that's when the issue gets couched as integration and segregation. But it's really a question to me of resources and how we attach excellence and resources and access to the assumption that skin color is defined by all those things. It's It's that. So episode five, because it's attached to power. It's attached to opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's attached to career longevity. Mm -hmm. It's attached to, I mean, there's this one scene, the guy's just, you know, she went to buy ice cream. Ruby went to buy ice cream and she has her money and she tries to pay. And the guy's like, no, no, no. Basically, it's on the house. Yeah. You go ahead. Take your free stuff. Walk down the street. You know, she has this interaction with this young black boy. She bumps into him and the police just, of course, swarm in. You know, asking the young the young man, you know, what happened? What'd you do to her? And she's like, I bumped into him. 
Um, and they're like, oh, let's take you home. And then she became the victim. And she, yeah. oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. this idea of you said access, mm-hmm. you said resources, but also power mm-hmm. and privilege yeah. and opportunities and visibility. All attached to the skin. All attached to the skin. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It doesn't belong there. And I think there's this really, and I don't mean to go on and on, but there's this amazing part of episode five where there's some shedding mm-hmm. of skin. And. It's so powerful when Ruby sheds her black skin. Literally, the skin comes off. All the layers, the epi, all of the endo, all of it literally comes off. And then she gets new skin. And then that skin comes off. And then you look at this idea of all of these resources and the things that are afforded and power and and everything else because of some melanin and some Mm. skin. Can we ask our listeners a question? Let's do it. I like this connection to power and skin. I'm curious about what is the power that we feel when we feel that we are in our skin, when we are identifying ourselves as how we see ourselves. But what's the power in that? So you mean in my most raw self, mm-hmm. who I am at my core. Yes. Self-identify. The self-identifier, who I am. And when I'm most comfortable in that skin, in that place. What power exists in that? Oh, it's beautiful. That's a beautiful question. What power exists Mm -hmm. when I just show up as me, as raw as I am, right? The whole question makes me feel free. (laughs) There's freedom in that. There's freedom in in our identities and there's freedom in our own self-proclaimed power. But the question is for our listeners, right? Self-proclaimed power. So what is the power that exists in the identity you give yourself when you're feeling the most like yourself, your best self? What power lies in that distinction? Who do you become? Good question, Taz. Who do you own? So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you all. So this has been great. This idea of power. Where do we put it? Yeah. Who has it? What's your truth about it? Thank you for another episode of Truth Be Told. Truth Be Told.